afternoon with the Council of Water State 48. Where the church summarized what we believe and confess concerning and it reads as follows, What is the second petition of your kingdom come? That is, so rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church, destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Come, 
The question might come to mind then, well, why do we still have to pray this petition? For the kingdom of God exists already, does it not? You think of the words of John the Baptist, for example, when he began to preach, he proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But no congregation, he didn't say the kingdom of heaven has finally arrived, but that it has come near, it has come, it's at hand. Because he was preaching the arrival of the Son of God upon the earth. So that means that the full actualization of the kingdom of God was coming closer. It's true, of course, the kingdom of God has always existed from the beginning of the world. But that kingdom is also advancing. God reigns, he has always reigned, and he will always reign. And he does so through his son, Jesus Christ. As we read from 1 Corinthians 15, God puts everything in subjection under Christ. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 1 as well. God has raised Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So again, that means that everything in today's world, including the hurricanes and the changing of the season, the migration of the birds, and winter and summer, and the whims of dictators and prime ministers, everything is subject to Christ. So again, the question comes to mind, why do we pray this petition? Since God's influence cannot be enlarged, is this not a superfluous prayer? Well, we need to understand that although it is absolutely true that everything and everyone is subject to God and to Christ, the other truth is that not everyone acknowledges this. It was once that way, of course, before the fall into sin, but we know what happened, right? There was rebellion in heaven, I heard that this morning, Satan rebelled in heaven along with the angels, some of the angels. He wanted to set himself on God's throne, so he rebelled against his master, and he took mankind down with him. And now then, there are two kingdoms that exist together on earth, God's kingdom and the kingdom of Satan the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. And these kingdoms are diametrically opposed to one another. So now the kingdom of darkness has infiltrated the kingdom of light, like weeds in a, grain of, in a field of grain. You could say that earth has become occupied territory. And the effects of that occupation were noticeable immediately in the hearts and the lives of Adam and Eve and also soon after the fall, in the, in the hearts and lives of their children. Right? Cain kills his brother Abel. And today Satan continues to wage war against God and his church. I heard that this morning too from Revelation 12. Right? Satan is, is full of fury because he knows his time is short. He knows that ultimately the victory is not his. So he's going to take down as many people as he possibly can. Apostle Peter describes him as going around on earth like a roaring lion, seeking victims to devour. But then we might ask, well, if that is true, is God still really king? If the kingdom of Satan still exists, can we, can we sing, the Lord is king and robed with majesty? Because when we look at the world around us, we see the effects of evil, the injustice, 
and hatred of people for one another. And we might even ask ourselves where now is the kingdom of God? Some people even claim that God has abandoned his, his creation to Satan. But brothers and sisters, nothing can be further from the truth. It's certainly true, of course, that God could have abandoned his creation to Satan. That's exactly what Satan was after. And Satan would have won the victory, but God didn't allow that to happen. He couldn't. Because he is who he is, he cannot abandon his kingship. Just like we understood from the first part of the Lord's Prayer, God cannot abandon his fatherhood. He doesn't abandon his character. And that's why he cannot abandon the citizens of his kingdom either. The king is not a king without subjects. And so God, the king, would have denied his own character if he had abandoned his subjects, if he had abandoned his kingdom to someone else. Instead, what he did, in incomprehensible mercy and grace, he broke into the kingdom of darkness and he rescued Adam and Eve. Promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And with this promise, he immediately set forth his plan to bring Messiah into the world. And the Old Testament shows very clearly how God was busy doing this. Satan never stood a chance, not even a small chance. Of course, you read through the Old Testament many times, it looks like Satan had almost won, right? And it must have seemed to him sometimes too that he was winning, but he was wrong. He was only fooling himself. Right? There were only eight persons on the ark. Only eight people floating on the waters of God's wrath. But God saved his church and his kingdom through those people. And then when men built the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God scattered them and their pretensions over the face of the earth. And throughout history, Satan's attempts at destroying the kingdom of God failed again and again. Just think of what happened in Egypt with Pharaoh and in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and then King Herod who destroyed, tried to destroy the Christ child. They all had to bow to God's authority. They all had to admit God is king. And so, also with Cyrus of Persia. The Bible calls him a shepherd of Israel. God used him to shepherd his people back to Jerusalem, so that to the temple and to the city of David. God used this pagan king to work out his plan of redemption so that Messiah would come to the world and Satan could not stop him. Of course, he thought he had won when the Son of God was hanging on the cross. But again, he was dead wrong. Because that was his ultimate defeat. Because in the cross, the victory, the kingdom of God is assured. Victory over the kingdom of Satan. And yes, it's a different kingdom than many people hope for. Sometimes even a different kingdom than sometimes what we might be longing for. The Jews, for example, were hoping for an earthly kingdom. They were hoping that the Romans would be driven out and that the son of David would be back on the throne in Jerusalem. They were hoping for that former glory of David and Solomon to come back. 
What about us? What are we longing for? Don't we sometimes long for God to destroy all the wickedness in the world? Don't we wish sometimes that God would just get rid of Satan? He would have no power left whatsoever, so he couldn't hurt anyone ever again. Don't we want God to destroy the kingdom of darkness, which brings about so much suffering and pain? Isn't that what we long for? We just sometimes just want an end to it all. And like the Jews in Jesus' day, sometimes we're, we're hoping for maybe an earthly kingdom. The congregation, we need to elevate our thinking. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Even John the Baptist had his doubts about this. He sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the one who is to come, or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus sent this answer back to him The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. You see, this is how Jesus reveals his kingdom. And that is how the kingdom of heaven comes into your life. The kingdom of heaven is open through the preaching of God's word, the preaching of the gospel, which is the forgiveness of sins for sinners who throw themselves at the foot of the cross. And it's not a kingdom, not a kingdom of coercion, it's not a dictatorship, it's a kingdom of grace. For the king is also our father. A dictator just demands compliance. But our Father, the King, He moves us by His love. So the Kingdom of God is not based on force or violence, and its, and its highest goal is not to claim the world for Jesus, but its goal is to break into the hearts of men and women and boys and girls everywhere. And so when we pray for God's Kingdom to come, we are asking God to annex us into his kingdom. That's what he did with his disciples, for example. He commandeered their hearts through his love and grace, and he enlisted them as soldiers in the army of the kingdom of heaven. And then he sent them out into the world in the book of Acts and the letters of the Apostle Paul. And the further church history shows how Christ the King did this, that he conquered and still is conquering hearts so that people can enter his kingdom. So when you pray, your kingdom come, you are praying to be taken up into this army in the work of God's kingdom. But that's also precisely where we recognize the tension, the enmity that God promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. The enmity between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that enmity congregation also lives in our own lives, that antithesis. You see, there's, there's a tension, isn't there, between what we confess and pray on the one hand and what we do on the other, isn't there? When we look into our own hearts, we see that conflict, we experience that conflict in ourselves. And we can have all kinds of discussions about the kingdom of God and about the doctrine of the church. That's all very important. But if the battle in our own heart is lost, then none of that matters. And of course, we don't want to diminish any of those things. 
We don't want to diminish the need for evangelism and mission, the need to be politically active, the need to defend and organize Christian education. All of these things are vitally necessary. But if we do not submit ourselves to the rule of God, then all of those things mean nothing. And that's why this petition is so important. Before we ask God to increase His church and preserve His church, we ask Him to make us, Lord, make me a better citizen in Your kingdom. Because it's here, it's in our heart that the greatest battles are fought. Because isn't it true? Isn't it true that the most difficult part of being a Christian is simply submitting to God's word? So with this petition, we ask God to rule us by His Word and Spirit. God's kingdom doesn't come with worldly glory and splendor, but it comes when sinners fall on their knees in repentance. So we pray this petition. Remember, the Lord's Prayer is given to disciples of Christ. So this prayer is not in the first place for unbelievers. This is a prayer for believers, for ourselves, so that we might be useful soldiers in the kingdom of God, soldiers who serve the king. And that brings us to our second point. When we pray this petition for ourselves, then we may also extend it to the church. We confess that it means preserve and increase your church and destroy the works of the devil. Now it's true that the boundaries of the kingdom of God are larger than the church. The two are not equal. But you can't play the two off against each other either. It is not right for Christians to be enamored with the kingdom of God and at the same time despise the church. Because the kingdom exists for the sake of the church, and the church is the reason that the kingdom of God increases. So the church represents the kingdom of God on earth. Because how could the kingdom of God come if there were no church? It is as the church spreads across the world that we see God's kingdom increasing. As more people come to faith, God is more and more acknowledged as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why we pray for the preservation and increase of the church. God's church cannot be gathered and increased if it is, first of all, not preserved. So we pray that God, that the Lord would preserve his church and keep her faithful to his word. That means that he would also preserve his church from heresy, from false doctrine, from legalism, from disunity, from schism. And so what's the implication of such a prayer? Well, congregation, like the other petitions, this prayer also calls us to go to work. We are called to pray and work. You cannot pray, for example, Lord, increase your church, and then keep your wallet closed. You cannot pray this petition and never speak about the kingdom of God. You cannot pray for the preservation of the church and then live in a way that everyone says, he obviously doesn't care about the kingdom of God. You cannot pray, Lord, preserve your church and then be indifferent toward church membership, 
or apathetic toward your involvement in the church. You see, when you pray your kingdom come, you are, you are giving yourself. That's what it implies. You're giving yourself and your talents and your time and your energy for the preservation and the increase of the church. Right? Because there's so much to be done. So many things to do. Sick and the lonely need to be visited. There's members in difficult circumstances. We need to carry one another's burdens. We need to build each other up. We need to get together and study the Bible and pray together. And above all, this petition is a prayer for the ministry of the gospel, that God's word would increase his truth. Incarnation not begins in the home. It begins in our home. That God's kingdom is increased through the generation. And that his kingdom comes also into the hearts and lives of our children and our grandchildren. And so fathers and mothers and grandparents, we must take the education of our children seriously. That we don't just leave it up to the catechism instructor or the Christian school. When we pray your kingdom come, that's a call to act in faith. To fulfill the promises that you made at the baptism of your children. Further, when we pray for the increase of the church, we need to keep in mind it's not our church. Our confession is very careful to say that it's preserved and increased your church. That means, Lord, keep us from becoming too narrow-minded about your church. Keep us from becoming smug in our own little world. Lord, teach us how we are included in the worldwide kingdom gathering work that you are doing. Lord, make us active for mission work and to support it. Make me bold, Lord, to speak about your kingdom. Help me to be a friend of sinners. And Lord, protect the children and the youth of the church, may your kingdom come through them. Again, every prayer is a call to work. And then let's also take the devil and his hatred for the Christ church seriously. We pray, we confess that this petition means to destroy the works of the devil because he continues to do what he tried and succeeded to do in the Garden of Eden. To wreak havoc wherever he can. He hates God. He hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He hates the church. He hates the gospel. And he hates it when you believe it. He hates it when we pray. He can't stand it when we repent of our sins. Because that means that God's getting the glory and he isn't. He is our arch enemy too. If he cannot kill off the church through persecution and bloodshed, he will try more devious means. Right? His favorite tactic is still to raise conspiracies against God's holy word. He loves to destroy our confidence in the gospel of grace. He loves it when we doubt our salvation, when we doubt that God is good, when we, when we doubt that God loves us. He loves nothing better than to destroy our confidence in the word of God and the love of God. So again, this prayer is a summons to battle. You have to know what side you stand on. 
because there is a battle going on, and God's people are right in the middle of it. God said, I will create enmity. We're right in the middle of it. And it's a battle to the finish, because these two kingdoms cannot coexist forever together. They can't. And so we continue to pray, your kingdom come. Lord, destroy the works of Satan. There's a power that raises itself against your kingdom. And it's not a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer of confidence in the issue. Because God's kingdom is coming in its fullness. As far as they end with the words, Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Notice we're not praying in order that God's kingdom might come, but we pray until your kingdom comes. Right? So the possibility that it's not coming doesn't exist. That's not part of our confession. And because Christ is king, you can expect this petition to be fulfilled. It will happen. Because Christ is king, you must expect that he can and will change your heart by his word and spirit. So that you more and more submit to his will. And because Christ is King, we can expect, we must expect that he will preserve his church. And because Christ is King, we know that he will destroy the works of the devil. And so today we pray for the coming of God's kingdom. While we're still in the middle of that battle, that battle for that kingdom, but we pray from the perspective of victory. Pray from the perspective of victory. And one day, we will experience the grand finale of that victory. Then we will fully experience the results of Christ's victory on the cross. And then Christ will hand over the kingdom to his Father, so that he can be all in all, so that God will be glorified, because that's the ultimate purpose of the coming of the kingdom of God. God's glory. He would be glorified. And that's what really matters. And that's why the church is being gathered and all of God's enemies are being destroyed so that he will receive all the honor and the glory. And that's why we have comfort and assurance because it is going to happen. It really is. So let's, let's live our Christian life from that perspective. Also this coming week. Amen.